This morning, what we have before us is, has been read for you as we continue our time through Luke. A familiar passage. Sometimes the familiarity of a passage, um, it can almost be dangerously so. That we hear it particularly read at a certain time and then we're intuitively reading the text and we pick up on what the main theme is and what the, what, what's taking place in the text. And sometimes it just becomes, for many of us that are walking with Christ church for a portion of time, it becomes somewhat second nature and we move right past significant pieces and portions for our own reflection. I hope to refresh and kind of come at this text a little bit differently to kind of... Um, with a little bit of a different analysis here that I'd like to focus on between verses 10 and verses 14. When we think of evangelism, we recall that evangelism is not the offering of an individual a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is, we all already have a relationship with the Lord. The distinction is between will we have a good, redeeming, and saving relationship with the Lord, or will we be those who have a relation to Him, not His brethren, not the children of God. That is, we remain at enmity with God. Everyone, in other words, by virtue of being born in time, has a relationship with God. Christ is the decision maker between a good, saving, and wonderfully blessed relationship unto God hidden in Him by faith alone or remain at enmity with God in a damning relationship to God by virtue of our own sinfulness. So the question then becomes what type or of what quality, of what kind of relationship does one desire to have with their Creator through Christ? We live in a bad news world. Here in this text, we hear the gospel is good news to those who know they are in bad news. It is a herald that you'll see this terminology in the text itself, that there is a good news I bring to you. That is a heralding announcement of good tidings. But it's, you understand once again to that relational aspect, it is good unto one who knows that they remain in a bad state of affairs. That herald, that announcement is good to one who knows they are standing in bad in relationship to their creator. Consider just for a moment this issue of enmity between sinful man And a holy God. Where did it all start? Where did it all begin? Genesis 2, 16 and 17. I read for you the covenant of works. This is how we then can look and say that each and every one of us has a way in which we relate to the creator God. Each person born in his image has a relationship of what quality and type will you choose to have. The covenant of works in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, that original relationship between God and Adam. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. You hearing the law provided to Adam, instruction unto Adam. 
every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat what is required and what is forbidden. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That is, to disregard God's law, to not perform that which is required, to transgress that which God has forbidden would be the downfall of Adam and Eve. They would die physically and spiritually. This law, this covenant of works, again, by virtue through Adam and Eve, is upon all who are their children by natural generation. We all relate to God. In what manner will we relate to Him? The law repeated to Israel in Deuteronomy 11, 26, and 28, I simply read for you by way of introduction. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God. Do that which is required. You will receive blessing. And the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. Do that which is required. Resist that which is forbidden. This is the nature of the law. Not between God and some, but between God and all. James 2.10. So you're moving from Genesis, again published to Israel in Deuteronomy, and then in your New Testament portion in James 2. I simply read for you chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. We have said before in a series that we did on the law and the gospel and the distinctions between what God requires and what God provides. I simply refresh your memory by calling to account that God does not, as evidenced here from the covenant of works, from it being republished to Israel in Deuteronomy, or as James makes clear, even after the ministry of Christ preaching the law himself, God does not grade on a curve. This is the issue of bad news. So all the more important, if God does not grade on a curve, and he didn't in our parents, in Adam and Eve either, that the day that they ate, so surely did they die spiritually. And all of their children thereafter, by natural generation, remain in that same estate. Relate to God in enmity with him. All the more important is this text then I put before you this morning that heaven comes forth in Luke chapter 2 and issues a good news announcement to you. It provides to you a herald, a glad tidings. And you notice in the text it is a great or a glad tidings that is of a great joy. That will be for all of the people. This is the good news announcement to those that understand they are in a bad news world. 
Look, if you would, with me at the portion of chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you gospel. I bring you good news. That's what the gospel is. It is a term used from the first century context of a heralding or a publishing of good news. It typically was used in the context of a battle, and, and, and one would see a battle raging and one marking down, hey, we're winning. I'm going to run back and I'm going to publish the gospel. I'm going to publish the good news announcement. We've won. We, we've overcome in the battle. That's the good news announcement. And here an angel appears and says to these men, fear not, for behold, I bring you a gospel, good news, a glad tidings. And this good news, I say, is going to be a great joy. That will be for all the people. And the good news is clarified in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, the heart of the good news announcement, the heart of the gospel herald or the glad tidings that the angel makes, the, the heart of it is that the grounds for all the people's rejoicing that which makes everyone rejoice, that which is truly a glad tidings filled with joy, is that a Savior has been born. A Savior. But once again, this assumes within this text your understanding of being in a place of enmity between you and heaven, a place of war between you and God, a place of disobedience in need of obedience. It assumes upon you that you know that you are in this estate. You are in a bad news condition, in need of hearing, outside of yourself, a good news announcement. Otherwise, what is the point of publishing? A Savior has been born. Because by definition, a Savior, of which I'm sure you're well aware by definition, a Savior is a deliverer. But why would that be such a glad tidings? Why would that be such a great joy if one doesn't know that they need to be saved? That is, in the greatest sense, at its core, a Savior is one who rescues people from certain death and destruction. Now, this good news announcement in this introductory word of fear not, a Savior has been born to you. The passage continues past the introductory pronouncement and makes clear yet again before we move forward the reality of our bad news world. Again, not to skip over but to slow down and grasp the significance of the herald of a Savior being born. Notice how right after verse 11, this, this joyful announcement that is the key in verse 11 is that it's a Savior. And then the description, it is Christ the Lord who will save his people from their sins. 
Look as it progresses now to once again make clear that we are in need of this very event. Each one of us in here are in need of the herald of verses 10 and 11. Look at verse 12, 13, and 14, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Notice very clearly as we begin to walk through the passage for a few moments. Have you taken time to consider how God's pledge of peace is particularized? Think for a moment with me on this. Look at verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth a publication of peace. But you see how the peace is further particularized. There's a pledge of peace to those with whom God is pleased. In other words, the passage makes clear what is automatically evident, I would think, to each of us, that there are those with whom God is pleased and there are those with whom he is not pleased. The publication of peace to those on earth is particularized to those who please the Father. This I hope to speak on just for the next few moments because this is speaking to the enmity between God and man. This is more than simply mentioning that maybe a couple of people in here, maybe a few of us, maybe we would generously say that even each one of us has a moral hair or two out of place. We all recognize that, okay, I get it, I'm not the best parent. I'm not the best spouse. I'm not the most generous that I know. I'm not the most hardworking that I've ever met. But this is not what this text is describing, that just you need a better form of you to be the best. But rather, this is a particularized comment, once again, that God does not grade on a curve, and his holy justice cannot be adjusted to suit any one of us. There was perhaps you saw it, and I I, I can't tell in my own heart if it should be made much of or should just completely disregard it and roll your eyes and move on. I'm not sure, Um, but perhaps you saw there was a um, a, a mega pastor um, speaking to a congregation a week ago or so that had made mention that God broke the law um, for love, that, that God violated his own law because like a parent, he saw his children were in dire straits underneath the weight of it. And like you with your own parent and played upon the sympathies of a human experience, you know, if your child fell and got injured, would you take time to um, worry about the speed limit 
and saving them and rushing them to the hospital? Would you take time to worry about all of those little things? You know, and of course not. That'd be nonsense. Throw the kid in the car, floor it, get there fast as you can, save their life. Well, analogy is drawn. Same with God. He sees, like a parent, his children in trouble underneath the weight of the law. And I want you to get fired up and join me in thinking, God broke that law to save you. He broke his own law for love. And to whatever it is, thousands of people cheering and clapping. And the Orthodox all fall dead. That's not the heart of the good news announcement, that God broke the law for love. No, we ourselves are not the epicenter of God. We're not not his total focus and affection that he accomplishes all things for our glory. And, And certainly as we look at the good news announcement, how would it be good that he sent a savior if he could arbitrarily break his own law or put it in context, this individual saying to the church that God would sin in order to save. Which undercuts his holiness, his sense of justice, what he even performed in Christ, which is the announcement here that a Savior has been born to you. That's the good news. Not that God violated his law, but that he provided a law keeper. This is the good news announcement. He cannot adjust his holiness and sense of justice to suit our needs. So this morning, in our text, the most important question that I'd like to focus on for the next few moments, the most important question I think here in this passage, and I'm asking you to attend with listening and then follow through and see if I picked a really weird question or I picked one that you'd agree with me is a very pressing and important one here as we examine it just for a moment And I want to read verse 14 one more time and then give you my question I'd like to explore for the next couple of moments. And verse 14, look real carefully with me for a moment. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This then is provokes in me this question to pursue with you this morning. How can one be pleasing to God in order that he slash she may achieve peace with God? So, so one more time, if, if, if God is publishing peace, the pledge of peace goes out, but particularized to those who are pleasing to him, that is, without being pleasing to him, we will not have his peace. Or we will not be at peace with him without being pleasing to him. Do you see? So then let me ask the question one more and then I proceed. How can one be pleasing to God in order that he may achieve peace with God? is the question of the good news announcement this morning. I want to do two things in answering this question. It's a little bit different than I normally do if I guess I do something normally. 
And, and hopefully there's some sense of rhyme or reason or pattern to, if you've come for a portion of time to Redeemer, there's some method to the madness that you can follow. This method might be a bit different this morning, but I think it's pressing that we consider it. I want to answer this question um, by considering two answers that we might give um, to the question, how can one be pleasing to God in order that he may achieve peace with God? The first question that I want to pursue or answer that I want to pursue is the typical but wrong answer. The typical but wrong. And then secondly, make clear, and that's my hope, make clear the correct answer provided from the text of Scripture. So, So pursue for a moment the typical but wrong. Consider the typical but wrong response to the question, How can one be pleasing to God in order that he may achieve peace with God? He is at enmity through the covenant of works, through his own sinful rebellion, his trespass, transgression, his lawlessness, both with heart, thought, and deed. He's at enmity. That that, that is who are children of disobedience. So how does one then no longer experience enmity and experience his pledge of peace? The answer is through personal performance of a good life. This I put forward to you as the typical but wrong answer of how one can have peace with heaven. Is The answer is through personal performance of a good life. Now, as I was thinking of saying this to, to those here at Redeemer, there might be a little bit of an eye roll or perhaps a balk at that just for a moment, thinking, I don't think that. I'm not sure that anyone I go to church with thinks that. I'm not sure that those here this morning are thinking that that really is a typical response. But before you do so, before you kind of brush me off or or balk at that thought, that that's just an easy one to rip down, it's not really the typical response, let me develop it for a moment and press you on that. That the answer is how I have peace with God is through personal performance of a good life. I would put forward to you that this answer, and here's my key distinction, whether verbalized or not, is where I'm now in the realm of or not, to really hang my hat on that hook. I agree. I don't think many of us verbalize it. But I still find that to be a typical response of the nonverbal kind. This answer, whether verbalized or not, is one in which multitudes of people, multitudes of people, even among those who profess Christ as their personal Savior, find repose. I'm willing to bet the ranch on it. I don't have a ranch to bet. A small house on Winebiddle Street. But I'm convinced by our own shared human experience and condition, multitudes of people find repose in that response, non-verbalized, that their peace with God is through personal performance of a good life lived. 
One author makes this comment about deathbed situations for pastors and pastoral counseling of being at the bedside of one who is dying and a brief word of instruction to young ministers on how to improve upon your time there and what to provide and how to care for the saints in a difficult hour and the role of a minister at that time. He makes comment on that context. When pastors ask, even lifelong church members, if they are ready now in this hour to meet their God, they often hear, quote, I hope so. God knows I haven't done everything right, but I've tried. Now, perhaps prior to that hour, had you asked them in service at Lord's Day, what is your only hope in life and in death? Perhaps they would have said something along the lines of Heidelberg's answer, that I am not my own, but I have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And I belong to him, both in this life and in death. But in the hour, when it's about to occur, I know I haven't gotten everything right, but I've tried. Is a different answer. And let me develop a little bit where now next where I think this blindness comes from for each of us. Where does this come from? To feel that sense of personal performance of a good life lived is how I establish peace with heaven. Where does that come from? And then secondly, how is that perpetuated? How does it keep going though? Okay, so if we find this source of where that kind of comes from, How does it just keep motoring along and getting stronger over time? What is the mechanism at work here for each of us as sons and daughters of Adam? Let me suggest to you that such blindness is established through natural giftedness. Number one, such blindness is established through natural giftedness. Indulge me, if you would, to just think for a moment of how natural gifts, and and what I mean by natural gifts is that's simply what your mom and dad gave you, you know, for better, not the worse, your good side. Let's speak there to just natural-born giftedness. Think on things like good temperament. You know, it's easy to get along with. Personal accomplishments, whether in the workplace or physical feats. Good relationships, a web of good relationships. People constantly affirming you and you affirming them. Having drinks, going out for dinner, enjoying fellowship. All of these things, this just somehow is a part of your natural born giftedness. People like you. And you seem to like people, and you have all of that comfort. Self-discipline is yet another one. A natural-born giftedness. And think of how good temperament, personal accomplishment, good relationships, self-discipline contribute to our sense or your sense of personal worth, goodness, or righteousness. 
We can act like that's not a very loud voice. But it is. There's not just one of us in here who hears it. Moreover, press yet a little further on this, 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 this idea of, I hope so. God knows in this hour, I haven't done everything right, but I've tried. Natural gifts speak and fortify that sense of personal worth and goodness and righteousness. Moreover, the exercising of these natural gifts now, consider yourself a person of good temperament, easily agreeable, personal accomplishments. You're a person maybe who stands tall in self-discipline. You're ready to do the job, grab your pen and paper or your computer and make it happen. When you then set about either in the workout room or with your group of runners or with your temperament in your friendships or as a leader with self-discipline, you begin exercising those, my, I double underline, natural gifts. You begin to exercise them in those web of relationships at the workplace. In other words, in the presence of others, you begin acting on those natural gifts. They're typically reinforced. As you exercise your self-discipline, you experience affirmation, like others giving you more power and responsibility. You then have those good relationships, and you seem to be a person of even temperament. That gives you more control over people and situations. It also brings along your way through self-discipline, lots of creature comforts in the accomplishment of your works. Payday goes to the disciplined. And then one is finally probably promoted in the exercising of his or her natural-born gifts. I am suggesting to you that you just be in you on a day-to-day basis blurs the line between what one perceives to be bad news versus good news by one's own natural gifts becoming a form of assurance. Affirmation in one's life with Christ comes simply from natural-born gifts. Thus, no longer is one able to keenly perceive their bad news situation. All seems to be by my own exercising of my gifts and those around me who affirm them, I'm pretty solidly in the good news condition. Such blindness where one finds repose, that they have peace with God based upon their trying and their doing, is, in my opinion, established through natural giftedness. Secondly, through established through natural giftedness, 
That is simply what your parents gave you by DNA. It is further perpetuated through the conscience. It is perpetuated through the conscience. You see, since we kind of automatically put ourselves on a performance wheel in the light of the gospel, thinking of how is it that I have peace with heaven, and turning inwardly, whether we verbalize it or not, but find assurance in things like our natural giftedness and others affirming that natural giftedness as we exercise it, finding there to be our foothold of assurance and strength. The conscience comes right alongside of that effort. And our conscience then, according to our own performance, becomes the judge in matters of righteousness and sinfulness. Notice the step that I just made. In the exercising of my natural giftedness and personal performance, the conscience comes right alongside of my efforts and becomes unto me the judge in matters of righteousness and sinfulness. But, consider this, the conscience perpetuates our blindness. How so? Just think for just a moment how the conscience perpetuates our blindness through convincing us, each one of us, that our natural-born gifts, again, that which our mother and father simply gave us by birth, that sense of can-do-edness, self-discipline, good relationships, solid temperament, our conscience perpetuates by convincing us that these natural-born gifts are actually spiritual fruit. Once we begin to look within for assurance, our conscience perpetuates our blindness. We are simply self-examining. We look within being persuaded by ourselves about ourselves. We drive deeper into ourselves as our conscience speaks. Self-justifying peace. A word unto each of us as we look within for assurance that the conscience performs a task that numbs our fear, helps our anxiety, and brings relief to our boredom by offering us a false assurance of peace with God. Where we must be careful that self-discipline is not confused with spiritual discipline. With leadership and principles of leadership not being confused with spirit-led leadership. Because in 
sum, if I were to summarize together, this point of a good news announcement comes only unto those who grasp they are in a bad news world. By the conscience simply being our guide, as it were, and others that we look to for affirmation saying, yeah, man, you're doing a great job. Man, you're a real special guy. You're an amazing woman. The vicious cycle of self-justifying work never ends. Well, I just need to be even better next time because I really earned that person's approval by being good this time. And we just perpetuate a vicious cycle of seeking self-justifying good news from nothing more than physical attributes. Speaking false assurance in our life, we are blinded into believing that we have peace with God through personal performance by confusing spiritual fruit with nothing more than natural aptitude. So we might not step back and verbalize something what I would suggest is that answer that multitudes of people find repose in. We might not say, how do I, be, how do I become pleasing to God in order that I might achieve His peace? I might not then verbalize through personal performance of a good life. Because I know that that doesn't gain me an A plus in Sunday school. But I might turn deep within and rejoice over people recognizing in my life and affirming by giving me power, control, comfort, and promotion of self, anointing nothing more than my natural gifts as a form of spiritual fruit, and therein offer myself false premises of peace with God. question is a bit remaining on how is this even possible? How do we get there? How is it possible to pursue this level of assurance? I don't mean to take everyone in here and rattle your assurance and now begin to look only deeper at yourself and like, oh, let me discern every motive I've ever had. Is it spiritual fruit or is it simply just aptitude? What am I going to do? Never mind. I'm going to run out of the church. Um, that, that, that sense is, uh, that's not the point, is to begin a deeper analysis of now, not what I did, but now my motive, and then the motive of why I had the motive, and then that motive that brought me to this motive, so that I can finally, I don't know what I'm doing. Is that more assuring? I don't think it is. It, it's not. So how do we get there? We get there by people saying something like, God broke the law for love. We get there by doing that. Mishandling, misapplying the law and the gospel. If we get on a track where somehow we think, even by conscience sake, we can self-justify we can have the righteousness of Christ through effort. We have severely mistaken the law. 
And we have way high, too high of an elevated view of, again, only what our mother and father gave us, natural giftedness. It won't take you that far. And spiritually, it takes you nowhere. Consider just briefly the weight of the law for the sake of your assurance. The nature of the law is that the law of God is not a test of aptitude. He's not laying down the Ten Commandments for high achievers. And for everybody else, he'll figure it out and, like, break the law because he loves you. That's not what will occur. It's not a test in aptitude or ability. It's not a litmus test for who earned it. Rather, it is simply a revealer of sin. It isn't a test to do. It is a mirror that reveals that you cannot. Romans 3.10 suggests it this way. Paul says, none, and this is where we would get off track if we thought anything of simple aptitude is somehow spiritual fruit, and I'm actually earning my way to heaven. None is righteous. No, in case you missed it, not one. No one. Universal negatives. No one seeks for God. Paul continues in chapter 3, verse 10 and following. Now, we who know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Well, how many are there that are under it? Back to our introduction. Every natural born man and woman, everyone who's been born by natural generation, has a relationship to God through the law. So what does that render each one of us? Paul continues, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, just to be clear, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It's not a test in aptitude. And when we have made it into that, we give ourselves continuous false assurance. Not only do we have false assurance, we have self-righteousness that just perpetuates and perpetuates and perpetuates. We have discord and disharmony because we then look and we assassinate every person who can't climb heaven's hill as fast as we We have gravely mistaken the law and our own value. So that peace with God through personal performance and actual peace with God through the gospel could not be more different. That brings me to our closing time. And that is, I pledge that I would like to be clear and helpful on what is the right answer What is the right answer if the typical wrong, typical but wrong, whether verbalized in here, again, or not, through personal performance of a good life, what is the right and textual answer to how one can be pleasing to God in order that he or she might achieve peace with God? 
Remember, the pledge goes out, peace, glad tidings, great joy. To who? Those with whom he is well pleased. How might one receive that pledge of peace and be pleasing? This is my answer. I hope to prove in just the next few seconds. The answer that is biblical and right is by resting upon and receiving all of Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. How can one be pleasing to God in order that he or she may achieve peace with God? Please don't miss it. By resting upon and receiving all of Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. How did I get there? Just briefly look at the passage with me. Verse 10, once again. And the angel said to them, fear not. Do you see already right there? That which will get rid of fear, drive away anxiety. In the presence of God, fear not. For behold, I bring you a good news announcement. I bring you gospel of a great joy that will be for all the people. The grounds of that great joy and that pledge of peace with God is verse 11. For unto you, this is the good news. This is it, guy. This which will drive out all fear. This which will establish your feet in the way of peace. This which will bring you pleasure in the sight of God. This here is your good news announcement, brother. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior for your condition. A Savior for your sin. A Savior for your law-breaking. And this Savior isn't just anyone. This Savior is Christ, the Messiah. It is Christ, the Lord. Verse 14, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You see, those with whom the Father is well pleased are those who rest upon and receive his provision of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. See, that's God's provision. That's why from the provision of verse 11, he publishes a statement of peace. That's how one has peace with heaven. That's why he can say to those on earth, peace. With those in whom the Father is well pleased, they're the ones who received 
His provision of a Savior, laying down their sense of saving themselves. That which drives out fear and establishes your feet in the way of peace is Christ the Lord. Salvation in Christ alone is God's good news announcement in a bad news world. Aptitudes and natural proclivities are not good news announcements. Some of you more gifted than others, different areas of giftedness than others. The great story to each of those things is that neither are grounds for deliverance. Whether you're very gifted or, let's say, very not so much gifted, neither are grounds for deliverance. Praise the Lord. Whether you're easily discouraged or whether you're, I can do it all, both are delivered the same way. Not through yourself, but by looking away from yourself and unto God's provision of a Savior who is born this day in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. Romans 5.1 I conclude with God's pledge of peace is only unto those who are well-pleasing to Him. And those who will be pleasing to Him are those who look unto His provision, not their own, for having peace with heaven. And Paul makes this comment in Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the means of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only means, both in Luke 2 and in Romans 5 and in every other page of Holy Scripture. That is the only grounds for your having peace with God. If you're relying on anything else, which we all are, all the time, repent. Every day, rest yet again upon the assurances of Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a few moments around your heralding announcement of good news to those in a bad news world. Lord, let us drown out our conscience that we flee to to self-justify and soothe. Let us not look for affirmation from other individuals who are just as sinful as us for grounds of assurance before you. Let us not look to natural aptitude, abilities, to somehow make it into a spiritual fruit. But Lord, let us look solely unto Christ, a Savior who is provided by heaven's own covenant of redemption for our sake. Let us flee to him and him alone resting from all of our labors, that we might enter into his rest, which is provided. In Christ's name I do pray. Amen. The good news that Jesus